When you stop and think about all that's going on today in the good old USA, you might think that there are only two sides to every story. With over 327 million citizens, there are actually many more sides to our American story. On this program, I provide you with a different point of view. Mine. This is The Truth Hurts, a program where I exercise my First Amendment right to free speech by providing you with information. I filter through the garbage, the media hype, the lies, and take you directly to the truth. This is my recipe for thought gumbo. Hopefully, you will absorb this knowledge, stop, and actually think about the issues, the facts, and the general state of our American story. I'm Steve Z, and this is the Truth Hurts Program. Good afternoon, everybody. It is Friday. It is the ninth day of August, 2020, and this is the afternoon edition of the Truth Hurts program with your host, Steve Z. He's too cheap to hire a real voice talent to perform his breaks. Steve Z, a thrifty guy telling it like it is. House Democrats introduced a bill on Friday today to establish an independent commission under the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to evaluate a president's health and oversee the transfer of power to the vice president should the president become incapacitated while in office. Now, this provision would not apply to President Trump during his current term, but it could be invoked in a second term if he is reelected and could be invoked against gropey Joe Biden if he is elected. Now, I've warned you all about this. I said earlier that the Democrats would find any and every reason possible to get rid of Donald Trump, either legally by having him voted out of office or illegally by any one of the numerous coup attempts or the other impeachment attempts that have been levied against the sitting president of the United States by nasty Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. And of course, now by this proposed legislation to give Congress power under the 25th Amendment to the Constitution that they did not previously hold. Now remember, in earlier programming, especially that this morning, I mentioned the Democrats eating their own. This measure is also a cog in the wheel that the Democrats could use against gropey Joe Biden in order to push Kamala Harris into the presidency by declaring Joe Biden to be incompetent shortly after he takes office and then push nasty Nancy Pelosi into the vice presidency. What happens from there is anyone's guess. The 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, as you may know, was adopted back in 1967 after the assassination of JFK to address what would happen to a president if he dies or is incapacitated or is removed or otherwise unable to fulfill the powers and the duties of the office of the presidency. It provides for the vice president to serve as the acting president if the president is incapacitated, for example, during surgery. It also allows for transfer of power if the vice president and the majority of the cabinet find the president is unable to function in his office, a provision that has never been invoked. Now, Nancy Pelosi threatened it earlier this year, and after Speaker Pelosi noted it empowers Congress to set up an independent body 
to confront such a crisis? Well, there's no need. The 25th is already an amendment and it's already set in stone and there's already a process and procedure. I guess she's trying to grab just a little more power. Her nasty little plan was unveiled on Capitol Hill Friday, a week after Trump was hospitalized with COVID-19. The bipartisan commission would consist of 17 top former elected officials and medical experts with the authority to request a medical exam of the president. Now she's doing this because Trump is refusing to submit to a medical exam right now, even though his doctor has said he is recovered from COVID-19. Pelosi said this legislation applies to future presidents, but we are reminded of the necessity of action by the health of the current president. Donald Trump was released from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Monday while undergoing treatment for COVID-19, which included at one point supplemental oxygen, an experimental antibody, and the therapeutic drug remdesivir, as well as steroids. On Thursday, Pelosi suggested Trump's seemingly erratic behavior since his release could be due to the side effects of his drug regimen. What's her excuse for her erratic behavior? Oh well, the 25th Amendment doesn't apply to the Speaker of the House, but don't you think it should? The President is, shall we say, in an altered state right now. I don't know how to answer for that behavior, said Pelosi. She doesn't have to answer for Donald Trump's behavior. He's doing nothing differently now than he's done for the past four years, pissing off Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi dismissed questions about the timing of the announcement of this bill, which has virtually no chance of passing the Senate, especially this close to an election. Pelosi said, This is not about President Trump. He will face the judgment of the voters, but he shows the need for us to create a process for future presidents. President Trump's reaction to the introduction of this bill was quite humorous in a tweet, and he suggested that it has more to do with his opponent's health than his own. The tweet said, Crazy Nancy Pelosi is looking at the 25th Amendment in order to replace Joe Biden with Kamala Harris. The Dems want that to happen fast because Sleepy Joe is out of it. <laughs> Way to go, Mr. President. The truth hurts, doesn't it? Especially for nasty Nancy. Political correctness is total BS. We apologize if you are offended, but we retract nothing. This is the Truth Hurts program. Up in smoke. That's where my money goes In my lungs And sometimes up my nose Oh, lovers of the green, the wildwood weed, the Mary Jane. Those of you who are invested in major cannabis producer stocks saw a surge on Thursday after Democrat vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris said that marijuana would be decriminalized at the federal level in the U.S. under a Biden-Harris administration. During the Wednesday night sparring with Vice President Mike Pence, Harris said she and Democrat nominee Gropey Joe 
would also expunge the criminal records of people convicted of weed-related offenses in the past. Cannabis stock tracker MJ ETF rose to 5.5% above its best session since early June, while Tilray Incorporated jumped 19.2% on the NASDAQ. U.S. listed shares of Canopy Growth Corporation, Weed.to, Afria Inc., and Aurora Cannabis all closed between 10 and 13% higher. Even though many U.S. states have legalized weed, banks and other traditional financial institutions have so far largely refused to work with the industry because weed is still classified as an illegal substance at the federal level. Regulatory issues have also restricted cash availability for companies in the weed sector. Kamala, I'm really not a African-American, but rather a island chick. She supported cannabis decriminalization even before Biden picked her as his running mate. And she's the lead sponsor of the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act of 2019, which sought to end federal prohibition of the wildwood weed. Potheads of America rejoice if the Biden-Harris ticket wins their way to the White House. I guess stocks in pizza rolls, Doritos, and other snack foods will also skyrocket. (laughs) Election day is fast approaching. Don't let the liberals destroy our nation. Vote for conservative candidates this November. Urge your family and friends and co-workers to save America. I am a non-human spokesperson. So do you want to be woke? The latest woke demand is to stop teaching black students standard English. In a column written by George Leaf on October 9th today, 2020, it says if we learned anything this year, It's that anything can be called racist. Among the things fitting that description is the teaching of standard English. Supposedly, that is demeaning to black students and lowers their self-esteem. The Conference on College Composition and Communications, an affiliate of the National Councils of Teachers of English, has released a demand that teachers and professors stop doing that. That meaning teaching standard English to black students. One academician who thinks this is a bad development is Boston University's Matthew Stewart. In today's Martin Center article, he explains his position. Regarding the demand, Stewart writes, quote, in language that invokes Old Dixie rather than the 2020 schoolroom, the CCCC statement portrays American schools as places where black children meet nothing but disrespect in their English classes. Language instruction, as it is now practiced, is said to seek to annihilate black language and black life. Thus, educators are called to engage in a political process that must inherently challenge institutions like schools whose very foundations are built on anti-black racism." Lots of English teachers will no doubt be devastated to hear that they have been complicit in the annihilation of black life and language when they correct papers for grammatical errors. This wild exercise in virtue signaling will make many progressives feel good, but will it do anything for students? 
Stewart thinks not. Quote, proponents of black English have made similar proposals in the recent past. The controversial 1990s Ebonics movement, a purpose-built blend of ebony and phonics, arose from the same basic assumptions as the CCCC statement, which is bound to produce the same set of counter-arguments heard by Ebonics proponents. The chief criticism leaps to mind. Students who do not learn standard English will be at a disadvantage once they leave their classrooms. I'm sure all the progressives will then solve that problem by demanding that employers stop caring how well prospective employees can use English. That's the end of the article. Now here's my take. If y'all's gonna be able to speak like this anytime y'all's wants to, and y'all expect me to understand what y'all's be saying everything, you know what I'm saying? But uh cause uh like you know what I'm saying, like uh yeah, you know, like um and that's why I can't uh figure out the problem cause uh it's bees racist. Then we're in a heap big trouble, boys and girls. Ebonics is not a language. English is a language, and English has its own set of rules and guidelines. And to say black folk should not have to speak proper English is akin to black folk telling me that I can't be speak like this if I don't feel like I wants to. The double standard is alive and well, or the double standard is out there and it's sickening. This is the Truth Hurts program in English for the most part. Comprende? More truth than some people can handle. Steve Z, telling it like it is. And in a related story, an assistant professor at Duke University has resigned amid backlash after sending an email Friday that urged students to speak English 100% of the time while on campus and in professional settings. Megan Lee Neely resigned from her position as the Director of Graduate Studies for Biostatistics after university administrators learned of the email she sent to first and second year students in which she warned that their academic careers might suffer if they use their native languages around professors. Quote, to international students, please, please, please keep these unintended consequences in mind when you choose to speak in Chinese in the building, unquote. Neely wrote, according to screenshots obtained by the New York Compost newspaper, quote, I have no idea how hard it has been and is still for you to come to the U.S. and have to learn in a non-native language. As such, I have the utmost respect for what you are doing. That being said, I encourage you to commit to using English 100% of the time when you are in Hawk or any other professional building. Copying the second year students as a reminder, given they are currently applying for jobs, unquote, she added. Neely will remain on as an assistant professor despite resigning from her administrative post. She subsequently explained that she felt compelled to address the language issue after two professors complained to her that a group of Chinese students were speaking their native tongue very loudly in a student lounge. Both faculty members replied that they wanted to write down the names so they could remember them if the students ever interviewed for an internship or asked to work with them on a master's project. 
Neely wrote of these professors. She continued, They were disappointed that these students were not taking the opportunity to improve their English and were being so impolite as to have a conversation that not everyone on the floor could understand. Unquote. I'll stop for just a moment and say, so if two deaf persons were using sign language in the student lounge, would these professors have been pissed off and require that those deaf students start magically speaking English? Mary Klotman, the dean of Duke University School of Medicine, apologized on Neely's behalf and rejected her recommendation that students use English in professional and academic settings. She said, quote, To be clear, there is absolutely no restriction or limitation on the language you use to converse and communicate with each other. Your career opportunities and recommendations will not in any way be influenced by the language you use outside the classroom, and your privacy will always be protected, unquote. The university is also looking into a separate email Neely sent last February because, after all, let's just start digging into the past of anyone who might offend us. She supposedly then, last February, cautioned students that using their native language might convince professors that they were not trying to improve their English. And in the progressive style of eating their own, a number of other Duke professors have spoken out now against Neely and a group of students has circulated an online petition calling for the university to formally investigate Neely's conduct. A petition reads, As international students, we believe that the ability to speak in our native language creates a much-needed space for obtaining academic, social, and moral support from our peers. More importantly, the flexibility of choosing which language we speak is an intimate choice, one that is deeply tied to our own individual values, beliefs, and core identity." Unquote. I don't know, folks. Anything said can and will be used against you if it contains common sense. Steve Z is saying what you know you are thinking, only with a really cool DJ voice. The truth hurts. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, I haven't actually been to the White House since August the 6th because my impression was that their approach to how to handle this is different from mine and what I suggested that we do in the Senate which is to wear a mask and provide social distancing. McConnell has been warning his colleagues that they need to be healthy and present for Senate votes, especially the confirmation vote on Amy Coney Barrett to be the next justice of the Supreme Court. McConnell continued, If any of you have been around me since May the 1st, I've said wear your mask, practice social distancing, now that you've heard of other places that have had a different view, and they are, you know, paying the price for it. Many observers are interpreting McConnell's remarks as a sign to fellow senators that they should not be afraid to distance themselves from Donald Trump's sometimes cavalier approach to the virus. Now that may seem correct, but you can also hear McConnell warning fellow Republican senators that they need to be more careful over the next two weeks to avoid any future COVID cases that might threaten 
the confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Last week, Republican Senators Mike Lee, Tom Tillis, and Ron Johnson each tested positive for COVID. Johnson said this week that he'd vote for Barrett in a moon suit if necessary. <laughs> Good for you. A COVID-infected Republican senator in a moon suit voting to confirm Barrett would likely be portrayed as a crime against humanity by the press, even if it could be done safely after all senators have left the chamber and even if the act would be portrayed as heroic by the press if it were a Democrat doing the same thing. Johnson should not need his moon suit because as the Washington Compost reported back in July, the CDC advises that most people with active cases of COVID-19, the illness caused by corona, is that they isolate for 10 days after symptoms begin and for 24 hours after the fever has broken. And after that, they are free to leave isolation. So Lee, Tillis, and Johnson should be able to be back at work and healthy in time to vote. The biggest threat to Barrett's timely confirmation would be a couple of Senate Republicans, some of whom are in their 70s and 80s, becoming physically unable to attend necessary votes. And you know the Democrats are praying for that. Over the weekend, Mitch McConnell sent a letter to his Republican colleagues announcing that the Senate would be holding pro forma sessions until October 19th. McConnell said, On that day, we will need all Republican senators back and healthy to ensure we have a quorum. We need to lead now with extra prudence and care, not just for our own health and well-being, but to be able to perform our elected duties and be examples to the country. Wear masks, stay distant, and come back safely on the 19th. The message from McConnell was clear. Republicans in the Senate need to take every precaution possible so that they can ensure a smooth confirmation vote on Amy Coney Barrett. In other words, they need to be more careful than Republican senators who attended the White House event announcing Barrett's nomination back on the 26th of September. It's not for sure where or when any became infected, but two of the eight senators who attended the event have since tested positive, and that would be Senator Lee and Senator Tillis. They all tested negative on the rapid test used by the White House, but it is a well-known fact that this test is prone to producing some false negative results. It's not clear how many Republican absences it would take to derail a prompt vote. They control the Senate after all, 53 to 47. Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska have indicated that they oppose a vote on Barrett before the election. They're rhinos, of course, Republicans in name only. They only are listed as Republican because they couldn't possibly beat any of the Democrat rivals in those states during those primaries. And the political shit show continues. Telling it like it is, this is the Truth Hurts program with your host, Steve Z. Remember, racism is now defined as whenever anything is done to the 13% AA minority crowd by anyone else. But it's okay for the 13% AA minority crowd to express racist behavior towards the majority Caucasian 65%. 
One example is California's progressives are now determined to legalize racial discrimination in college admissions. They passed ACA 5, which overturns Proposition 209, which forbids discrimination. Their reason for doing so is to increase underrepresented group enrollment. Underrepresented groups are, of course, the AA 13% black minority and the 16% Hispanic minority. Now remember, those percentages are nationwide percentages, and the Hispanic percentage in California is way, way higher than 16. The campaign to pass ACA 5 will therefore focus considerable attention on the alleged benefits of racial preference in college admissions to black and Hispanic students. Even if one accepts the proposition that the state should be permitted to engage in racial discrimination in college admissions, an increasing number of studies show that racial preferences actually harm the intended beneficiaries. 13% AA black students and 16% Hispanic students admitted to colleges for reasons of racial preference are far more likely to flunk out or rank at the bottoms of their respective classes than their white and Asian counterparts. This is particularly true in science, technology, engineering, math, and law. These are facts, they're not in dispute. The phenomenon is due largely in part to what Richard Sandler and Stuart Taylor call the mismatch effect. The GPAs and SAT scores of black and Hispanic students admitted due to affirmative action reasons only are dramatically lower than their white and Asian counterparts, leading to profound performance disparities between the black and Hispanic group versus the white and Asian groups. These disparities result in these students being significantly more likely to cluster in the bottom quartile of their respective classes and sometimes drop out entirely. In contrast with race-blind admissions, blacks and Hispanics are more likely to enroll at schools that are more appropriately competitively matched thereby increasing their probability of graduation. ACA is a toxic two-way street. It legalizes the odious practice of racial discrimination and it hurts even the alleged beneficiaries of such discrimination. The only group that it benefits are those who claim to want equality in identity politics. The test scores prove it, but I'm sure they'll claim that the tests are racist because they're written in English. <laughs> this is the Truth Hurts program. And it's not just in colleges. Something smelled fishy on June 7th when the principal of Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Fairfax County, Virginia, sent a letter to school students and parents it implored them to reflect on the, quote, privileges you hold that others may not, unquote, and on the low numbers of blacks and Hispanics enrolled at the school, the number one high school in the nation, as ranked by U.S. News and World Report. Of the 1,809 students attending Thomas Jefferson in the 2019-2020 school year, more than 70% were Asian Many were from immigrant families. The letter's use of the word privileges 
confused one of the single moms who came to the U.S. from India when she was just four years old. Her son is now a senior at TJ, Thomas Jefferson. The principal's letter arrived only a few days after release of the admissions data for the new school year in which the number of black students admitted to the school appeared as TS, too small to specify. The actual number of African-American students at Thomas Jefferson turned out to be six. That was seized on by groups pushing for diversity at the school, such as the Thomas Jefferson Alumni Action Group, who saw a new ammunition source to demand change in the school's admission policy. Now remember, this is one of those schools that admits based on your skill and your ability and your grade point average, not based on the color of your skin. This one parent was aware of the previous rounds of wrestling over diversity at TJ through the years, so she says her radar was up. A journalist spoke at the next school board meeting, the first time she ever did, to suggest that black and Hispanic students could be helped to meet the current rigorous admissions criteria instead of changing the criteria based solely on their skin color. On September 15th, the Fairfax County, Virginia School District announced a plan that would destroy the current admissions policy for TJ, which is based on, among other things, test scores and teacher recommendations. Under the new plan, these would be tossed out and there would be a lottery for all students who meet basic eligibility requirements, including residency locations and a minimum GPA. The plan will be in place to decide on next year's intake of students if the school board approves it. Now, from the beginning, many concerned parents at TJ realized they were facing a tough battle, but they were not fighting it alone. A few Asian parents from New York who for two years had been protesting against a similar plan for major changes in admissions criteria for that city's top public schools saw the video of this school board testimony on Twitter and left very supportive comments. From there, Zoom meetings were arranged among parents, including one in late August, in which half a dozen New York parents shared the lessons that they had learned after their school had been radically changed to allow people in based on color of skin and not intelligence, test scores, other academic requirements. The topics of this Zoom meeting ranged from how to encourage often quiet Asian parents to speak up about how to fight this proposal by coming up with possible alternatives. The Asian families in New York City were an inspiration to us, said one parent. They were dubbed the silent majority because Asians seldom participate in civic matters and that was until this event occurred when the debate over affirmative action in college admissions began to heat up. They argued that they, the Asians, were being shortchanged in order to achieve racial balance on campuses with other minorities. Now, with race-conscious admissions policies being proposed in school districts across the country, these newcomers to public protesting are sharing their experiences and forming a nationwide network to defend not only their own values, but also those of America. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of equality was that race should not play a role in getting opportunities, according to Yu Kong Zhao, president of the Asian American Coalition for Education. We Asians are leading this movement now. 
The Asian American Coalition for Education was formed in May of 2015 and founded by Zhao and several other Asian parents who filed complaints with the U.S. Department of Education as well as the Department of Justice against Harvard's admission policy. In 2016, the group filed similar complaints against Yale. The Harvard case was turned down by the Department of Education and is still pending at DOJ, although the DOJ announced in August its determination that Yale did illegally discriminate against Asian and white applicants in its undergraduate admissions process. This, along with the Trump administration's actions last summer to rescind Obama-era guidelines that encouraged colleges to consider race in admissions, were celebrated by many Asian parents as major victories. But while the Asian parents were pouring their energy into these new high-profile cases against Ivy League institutions, desegregation became a buzzword in many local school districts, and affirmative action has trickled down from the college level all the way to kindergarten. The concern among many on the left is that top selective public high schools consist almost entirely of Asians and white students because they test well. And blacks and Hispanic students have difficulty competing. Well, the idea of going to school is to pass a test. And if you can't pass a test, why should you be included and everyone else have to drag themselves down to your level? In New York City, everyone's hated mayor, Bill de Blasio, announced a plan in the fall of 18 to get rid of the Specialized High School Admissions Test, the SHSAT, as the sole criterion for admissions to the city's top three public high schools. The plan has been stymied, at least for now, after tenacious resistance from Asian parents. In the same year, new admissions policies for merit-based magnet school programs for middle schoolers in Montgomery County, Maryland, was put in place to reduce the emphasis on test scores. In Virginia, not long before the TJ admissions plan was announced, parents in neighboring Loudoun County filed a lawsuit against a similar plan for the Academy of Science and the Academy of Engineering and Technology that was adopted in August of this year. And in California, Proposition 16, if passed, will allow race to be considered in public education decisions. And that's on the ballot this November, one year after Asian voters in Washington state helped to thwart a similar referendum. The trend is accelerating as the BM movement, oh, I'm sorry, as the Black Lives Matter movement and the so-called anti-racism movement gains momentum. Everyone talks about racism, but no one's talking about improving the life of education for K-8 through students anymore, said Chian Kwok, a New York parent, giving his impression of the more than dozen meetings of various community education councils that he has attended over the summer. To be sure, those who push for diversity in the school programs have legitimate reasons. There's plenty of research showing that a diverse learning environment benefits all students, and the pressure can be devastating for the small number of blacks and Hispanics admitted to a school where there are few other blacks and Hispanics. I thought we were supposed to be a colorblind society. I thought that the high-achieving schools were put there to help the high-achieving students to achieve and leave the other students to learn at a normal, moderate pace in less 
high-achieving schools. So what they want to do is drag down those high achievers, you know, spread the wealth around, and lower the standards, the requirements, and the test scores for everyone so that the little 13% AA crowd and the little 16% Hispanic crowd don't feel left out and don't feel stupid. Well, here's my question. In the end, when it's all said and done, I want to make sure that the guy working on my open heart or my brain was at the top of his class in the top school in his field. I don't want anyone to be able to say, but, but he went to Thomas Jefferson and then he went on to Harvard and Yale, even though he was only put there because he was, insert minority race here. At an online town hall meeting on September 17th, held by the TJ Partnership Fund, which supports diversifying the student body, one Hispanic student shared her experience in the freshman year computer science class, where many classmates had either learned the material beforehand in cram schools or had software engineer parents who could help them. She said, I felt as if I was the stupidest person in the class and maybe even in the whole school. Well, she didn't know the material. She didn't have a parent who was a computer engineer to teach her in advance. So we're supposed to lower the expectation of the whole class, lower the standards, because little Consuela didn't know the material she needed to know to pass the class? A black student shared her experience of trying to hide her hair and bleaching her skin to look less black. I didn't think TJ was ever designed to have people like me. I think I am a mistake, she said. Well, listen, you're the one worried about the color of your skin. You're the one worried about your nappy hair. The Asian kids don't give a rat's narrow, tight, fuzzy little ass about what you look like as long as you're not dragging down the overall performance of the number one school in the state of Virginia. They don't want the standards lowered because you have dark skin and curly hair. They don't want the scores lowered and the requirements lowered because you came across the border illegally. If you can't cut the class, you can't cut the material, then you need to go. To many Asian immigrants, the problem should be solved by helping black and Hispanic students to meet the current entrance criteria. Their thought is lowering the bar for the sake of racial balance is not fair to families that have been prioritizing education for generations. The principal of TJ High School, who supports the school district's reform proposal, says, when the students spoke, it hit me in the core. They entered TJ the same year that I did, which means their experiences happened under my watch and I didn't know. When the Asian parent, who I first spoke about, first came to the US, she lived with her family in a house where they had to turn on the gas stove for heat. The first gift her father gave her was an encyclopedia. Almost every Asian parent shared a similar story. They said, 
there are too many Asians in the school. But they never asked why there are so many Asians in these schools, said Eva Guo, co-founder of the Association for Education Fairness, which filed a lawsuit earlier this month against the Montgomery County Public Schools over the magnet program admission policy. It's based on hard work and sacrifice, she said. Compared with the cases against the Ivy League universities, the complexity of K-12 school systems presents much greater challenges for parents. However, the similarities among these admissions reform plans and the common values among Asian cultures can overcome the barriers. For example, all the announced reforms aim to reduce or nullify the importance of tests, which Asian students often excel at. All include factors that have nothing to do with a student's effort, such as the use of a lottery. And under all of these reforms, Asian students who are the majority in most merit-based schools would lose or already have lost a bigger share of the student population than any other racial group. You can't fight racism with racism, is what I say, folks. What, we're going to penalize the smart Asians by taking them out of a school that's probably to capacity with Asians and replace them with Hispanics and blacks and some dumber white kids? Let's consider that Thomas Jefferson school alone. Based on the school district's own estimates, if the new system had already been in place, it would have chopped the 73% share of Asian students in the current freshman class down to 54% while the proportion of white students would have risen from 18 to 25 percent and black and Hispanic students would have increased from 1 percent to 3 percent and 7 percent to 8 percent respectively. In other words, they would have cut out about a quarter of the Asian students to accommodate the other racial groups. One thing's for sure, Educational admissions are politicizing the Asian American community in the U.S. to an unprecedented extent. When the AACE filed complaints against Harvard in 2015, 64 other Asian American organizations signed on in support. When they filed complaints against Yale, 132 organizations joined in. And in January 2019, when they called for Asians to sign on to an amicus brief to support the lawsuit against Harvard filed by conservative-led students for fair admissions, 269 Asian organizations came on board. The Asians are one minority who would most likely benefit from a Republican-led government because the Republicans don't believe in changing the admission requirements just because you bees black. Back to TJ, about 200 people opposing the admissions reform gathered on September 20th to protest. Rage was visible on their faces, even behind their masks. A current student said her younger brother is even harder working than she. He wants to get into TJ and become an engineer, but now he worries that he'll lose the opportunity under the new lottery system. Luck should not be a factor. Hard work should, she said. But that's what happens when you're black. You can gerrymander a congressional district to ensure that you have a black member of Congress. And now you can gerrymander a school to make sure your black churn get in even when they don't pass the entrance tests. 
It's about education. It's not about skin color. But they will never accept or admit those facts. That's going to do it for this afternoon edition of the Truth Hurts program. Have a great afternoon and a great weekend. Just when you thought it was safe to leave home again. Just when you thought it was alright to go out and vote and shop and eat and work and play and worship. From Wuhan, China, makers of the Wuhan, China Coronavirus 2019, we proudly introduce COVID-20. Bigger and badder and far more contagious, COVID-20 is on the way. If you thought COVID-19 was bad, bad enough to shut down an entire economy, bad enough to force you to stay inside... COVID-20 will be far worse, guaranteed to shut down not only the economy, but bad enough to make people afraid to go out and vote. COVID-20 will force mail-in voting so that Democrats can vote as many times as they want, by mail, and no ID is required. COVID-20 does not affect protests, riots, anarchy, or other violent criminal anti-establishment gatherings. Do not go out in public for weddings, parties, graduations, or funerals, unless the funeral is for a convicted felon killed by a white cop. COVID-20 is only available until the November elections unless a Republican gets re-elected. In that instance, COVID-20 will last for at least four more years. Ask your doctor if COVID-20 is right for you. COVID-20, from the creative minds at the DNC. COVID-20, because we can. You have been listening to the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. Hopefully, we have provided you with engaging, enlightening, and educational information that will allow you to make informed decisions. I know you may not necessarily agree with everything I say, and that's okay in America. The right to express your opinion is guaranteed in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Just as I respect your right to your opinion, I expect you to respect my right to my opinion. And that's how it works. If you like what you hear, spread the word. If you don't like what you hear, you can either turn it off, or you could listen a little longer and maybe learn something. Background music courtesy of Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Copyright 2020 Steve Knight Productions. All rights reserved. We'll see you next time. The Minneapolis Tourism and Visitors Bureau invites you to visit now before we dismantle our police department and leave our city to fend for itself. Visit now while it's hot. Minneapolis and St. Paul, where Laverne and Shirley used to play, and the entire state of Minnesota invites you to come and stay, come and play. Minneapolis, home of corporate headquarters of Target, you know, the business rioters love to burn. Best Buy, the business looters love to loot, and U.S. Bank, the preferred choice of ATM thieves during anarchists' destructive parties. But if you do come, bring your body armor and lots of ammo, because the winters here are brutally cold, and the spring and summer bring brutal riots. 
And after next month, there will be no cops to report your crime to. So come on up to Minneapolis now, where we redecorated our streets and storefronts with a fiery new look, where the roadways are paved in blood and everything is free, free, free. That is, if you have the bricks and sticks to take what you want, just remember to breathe, because according to many rioters, they can't. Brought to you by the Minneapolis-St. Paul Tourism and Visitors Bureau.